Section 21 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 56 begins with Soldan, ends with Prester John, Part 1. In the summer of 1867, England received with strange welcome a strange visitor. Quis novus hic nostris successit sedibus hospis? Looking forward into the future, we may indeed apply yet other words of Dido, and say of the newcomer to these shores, quibus ille jactatus fatis. It was the Sultan of Turkey who came to visit England. The Sultan, Abdulaziz, whose career was to end ten years after in dethronement and suicide. Abdulaziz was the first sultan who ever set his foot on English soil. He was welcomed with a show of enthusiasm which made cool observers wonder and shrug their shoulders. The Cretan insurrection was going on, and the sultan's generals were doing cruel work among the unfortunate rebels of that Greek race, with which the people of England had so long and so loudly professed the deepest sympathy. Yet the sultan was received by Englishmen with what must have seemed to him a genuine outburst of national enthusiasm. As a matter of course, he received the usual court entertainments, but he was also entertained gorgeously by the Lord Mayor and Corporation of London. He went in state to the opera and the Crystal Palace, he saw a review of the fleet in company with the queen at Spithead. He was run after and shouted for by vast crowds wherever he showed his dark and melancholy face, on which even then the sullen shadow of the future might seem to have been cast. His presence threw completely into the background that of his nominal vassal, the viceroy of Egypt, who might otherwise have been a very sufficient lion in himself. Abdulaziz, doubtless believed in the genuineness of the reception, and thought it denoted a real and a lasting sympathy with him in his state. He did not know how easily crowds are gathered, and the fire of popular enthusiasm is lighted in London. The Shah of Persia was to experience the same sort of reception not long after. Garibaldi had enjoyed it not long before. Kossuth had had it in his time. Some of the newspapers politely professed to believe that the visit would be productive of wonderful results to Turkey. The sultan, it was suggested, would surely return to Constantinople with his head full of new ideas gathered up in the West. He would go back much impressed by the evidences of the blessings of our constitutional government and the progressive nature of our civic institutions. He would read a lesson in the glass and iron of the Crystal Palace, the solid splendors of the guild hall he would learn something from the directors of the railway companies and something from the lord mayor the cattle show at the agricultural hall could not be lost on his observant eyes the result would be a new era for turkey another new era the real new era this time the poor sultan's head must have been sadly bemused by all the various sights he was forced to see he left England just before the public had had time to get tired of him, and the new era did not appear to be any nearer for Turkey after his return home. Mr. Disraeli astonished and amused the public toward the close of 1867 by a declaration he made at a dinner which was given in his honor at Edinburgh. 
the company were surprised to learn that he had for many years been a thorough reformer and an advocate of popular suffrage and that he had only kept his convictions to himself because it was necessary to instil them gently into the minds of his political colleagues i had he said to prepare the mind of the country and to educate if it be not arrogant to use such a phrase to educate our party it is a large party and requires its attention to be called to questions of this kind with some pressure i had to prepare the mind of parliament and the country on this question of reform all the time therefore that mr disraeli was fighting against reform bills he was really trying to lead his party with a gentle hand thither oh thither toward the principles of popular reform this then people said is what vivian gray meant when he declared that for a statesman who would rule our wisdom must be concealed under folly and our constancy under caprice some members of the party which mr disraeli professed to have thus cleverly educated were a little scandalized and even shocked at the frank composure of his confession some were offended it seemed to them that their ingenious instructor had made fools of them but the general public as usual persisted in refusing to take mr disraeli seriously or to fasten on him any moral responsibility for anything he might say or do it might have been wrong in another statesman to put on for years the profession of conservatism in order that he might get more deeply into the confidence of conservatives and instill into them the principles of mr bright but in mr disraeli it was of no consequence that was his way if he were anything but that he would not be mr disraeli he would not be leader of the house of commons he would not be prime minister of england for to that it soon came came at last at this moment how many a powerful noble wants only wit to be a minister and what wants vivian gray to attain the same end what vivian gray once wanted to attain that end he had long since compassed only the opportunity was lately needed to make him prime minister and that opportunity came early in eighteen sixty eight lord derby's health had for some time been so weakly that he was anxious to get rid of the trouble of office as soon as possible in february eighteen sixty eight he became so ill that his condition excited the gravest anxiety he rallied indeed and grew much better but he took the warning and determined on retiring from office he tendered his resignation and it was accepted by the queen it fell to the lot of his son lord stanley to make the announcement in the house of commons there was a general regret felt for the retirement of lord derby from a leading place in politics but as soon as it appeared that his physical condition was not actually hopeless men's minds turned at once from him to his successor no one could now doubt that mr disraeli's time had come the patient career the thirty years war against difficulties were to have the long-desired reward the queen sent for mr disraeli and invited him to assume lord derby's vacated place and to form a government by a curious coincidence the autograph letter containing this invitation was brought from osborne to the new prime minister by general gray the man who defeated mr disraeli in his first endeavour to enter the house of commons that was the contest for wickham 
in June 1832. It was a memorable contest in many ways. It was the last election under the political conditions which the Reform Bill brought to a close. The Reform Bill had only just then passed, when Wickham election took place, and had not come into actual operation. The state of the poll is amusing to read of now. Thirty-five voters, all told, registered their suffrages. Twenty-three voted for Colonel Gray, as he then was. Twelve were induced to support Mr. Disraeli. Then Mr. Disraeli retired from the contest, and Colonel Gray was proclaimed the representative of Wickham by a majority of eleven. Nor had Wickham exhausted in the contest all its electoral strength. There were, it seemed, two voters more in the borough who would have polled if it were necessary on the side of Colonel Gray. Mr. Disraeli's successful rival in that first struggle for a seat in Parliament was now the bearer of the Queen's invitation to Mr. Disraeli to become Prime Minister of England. The public in general were well pleased that Mr. Disraeli should reach the object of his ambition. It seemed only the fit return for his long and hard struggle against so many adverse conditions. He had battled with his evil stars, and his triumph over them pleased most of those who had observed the contest. Mr. Frank H. Hill, in that remarkable book, unrivaled in its way, which bears the modest name of political portraits, speaks of Mr. Disraeli's curiously isolated position in the House of Commons. He sits like a solitary gladiator, waiting the signal for combat. The sentence is admirable as a description. Nothing could be happier as a comparison. For the very reason that Mr. Disraeli had always been like the solitary gladiator, the public were all the more pleased when his long, lonely struggle for his own hand carried off the prize at last. The public never looked on Mr. Disraeli up to this period of his career, at least, as anything but a brilliant gladiator. The author of Political Portraits observes that Mr. Disraeli's premiership is remarkable chiefly for the fact that he was Prime Minister. This, too, was true. It is a correct description of that short session of rule which came to Mr. Disraeli on the retirement of Lord Derby. But if Mr. Hill were to take up the subject now, he would probably admit that Mr. Disraeli's second premiership was remarkable for a good many other things besides the fact that he was a second-time Prime Minister. The new Premier made few changes in his cabinet. His former lieutenant, Lord Cairns, had been for some time one of the Lord's Justices of the Court of Chancery. Mr. Disraeli made him Lord Chancellor. In order to do this, he had to undertake the somewhat ungracious task of informing Lord Chelmsford, who sat on the woolsack during Lord Derby's tenure of office, that his services would no longer be required. Lord Chelmsford's friends were very angry, and a painful controversy began in the newspapers. It was plainly stated by some of the aggrieved that Lord Chelmsford had been put aside because he had shown himself too firmly independent in his selection of judges. But there seems no reason to ascribe Mr. Disraeli's action to any other than its obvious and reasonable motive. His ministry was singularly weak in debating talent in the House of Lords. Lord Cairns was one of the best parliamentary debaters of the day. Lord Chelmsford was hardly entitled to be called a parliamentary debater at all. 
Lord Cairns was a really great lawyer. Lord Chelmsford was only a lawyer of respectable capacity. Lord Chelmsford was at that time nearly seventy-five years old, and Lord Cairns was a quarter of a century younger. It is surely not necessary to search for ungenerous or improper motives to explain the act of the new Prime Minister in preferring the one man to the other. Mr. Disraeli merely did his duty. Nothing could justify a minister who had the opportunity and the responsibility of such a choice in deciding to retain Lord Chelmsford rather than to bring in Lord Cairns. No other change was important. Mr. Ward Hunt, a respectable country gentleman of no great position and of moderate abilities, became Chancellor of the Exchequer in the room of Mr. Disraeli. Mr. Walpole, who had been in the Cabinet for some time without office, retired from the administration altogether. A good deal of work was got through in the session. A bill was introduced to put a stop to the system of public executions, and passed with little difficulty. The only objection raised was urged by those who thought the time had come for abolishing the system of capital punishment altogether. Public executions had long grown to be a scandal to the country. Every voice had been crying out against them. The author of the Inglesby Legends had made a public execution the subject of a bitter and painful satire. Dickens had denounced the system with generous vehemence. Thackeray had borne stern testimony to its abominations. A public execution in London was a scene to fill an observer with something like loathing for the whole human race. Through all the long night before the execution, the precincts of the prison became a bivouac ground for the ruffianism of the metropolis. The roughs, the harlots, the professional robbers, and the prospective murderers held high festival there. The air reeked with the smell of strong drink, with filthy jokes and oaths and blasphemy. The soul took its flight as if it were a trapeze performer in a circus. The moral effect of the scene as an example to evildoers was about as great as the moral effect of a cockfight. The demoralizing effect, however, was broad and deep. It may be doubted whether one in ten thousand of those who for mere curiosity came to see an execution did not go away a worse creature than he had come. As the old-fashioned intramural burial ground made by its own vapors new corpses to fill it, so the atmosphere of the public execution generated fresh criminals to exhibit on the scaffold. Posterity will probably wonder how the age which would have scouted the idea of any wholesome effect being wrought by public floggings could have remained so long under the belief that any manner of good could be done by the system of public executions. Since the change made in 1868, the execution takes place within the precincts of the jail. It is witnessed by a few selected persons, usually including representatives of the press, and it is certified by the verdict of a coroner's jury. Another change of ancient system was made by the measure which took away from the House of Commons the power of deciding election petitions. The long-established custom was that an election petition was referred to a committee of the House of Commons, who heard the evidence on both sides, and then decided by a majority of votes as to the right of the person elected to hold the seat. The system was open to some obvious objections. The one great and crying evil of our electioneering 
was then the bribery and corruption which attended it a parliamentary committee could hardly be expected to deal very stringently with bribery seeing that most of the members of the committee were sure to have carried on or authorized bribery on their own account a false public conscience had grown up with regard to bribery few men held it really in hatred the country gentleman whose own vote when once he had been elected was unpurchasable by any money bribe thought it quite a natural and legitimate thing that he should buy his seat by corrupting voters as in a former age no gentleman thought it wrong to seduce a woman so in a very recent day no man with money thought it improper to spend some of his money in corrupting electors what censure was it likely a country squire would have got fifty years ago if accused before a council of squires of having seduced some tenant's wife or daughter just so much would a rich man have got twenty years ago from a parliamentary committee if it were proved that he had allowed his agent to lay out money ingeniously for him in bribes then again the decision of the parliamentary committee was very often determined by the political opinions of the majority of its members acute persons used to say that when once the committee had been formed they could tell what its decision would be show me the men and i'll show you the decision was the principle it was not always found to be so in practice a committee with a conservative majority did sometimes decide against a conservative candidate a committee with a majority of whigs has been known to unseat a whig occupant but in general the decision of the committee was either influenced by the political opinions of its majority or what was nearly as bad so far as public influence was concerned it was believed to be so influenced there had therefore been for a long time an opinion growing up that something must be done to bring about a reform and in eighteen sixty seven a parliamentary select committee reported in favour of abandoning altogether the system of referring election petitions to a tribunal composed of members of the house of commons the proposal of this committee was that every petition should be referred to one of the judges of the superior courts at westminster with power to decide both law and fact and to report not only as to the seat but as to the extent of bribery and corruption in the constituency the judges themselves strongly objected to having such duties imposed upon them the lord chief justice stated on their behalf that he had consulted with them and was charged by them one and all to convey to the lord chancellor their strong and unanimous feeling of insuperable objection to undertaking functions the effect of which would be to lower and degrade the judicial office and to destroy or at all events materially impair the confidence of the public in the thorough impartiality and inflexible integrity of the judges when in the course of their ordinary duties political matters come incidentally before them notwithstanding the objections of the judges however the government after having made one or two unsuccessful experiments at a measure to institute a new court for the trial of election petitions brought in a bill to refer such petitions to a single judge selected from a list to be made by arrangement among the judges of the three superior courts this bill which was to be in operation for three years as an experiment was carried without much difficulty 
it has been renewed since that time and slightly altered the principle of referring election petitions to the decision of a legal tribunal remains in force and it is very unlikely indeed that the house of commons will ever recover its ancient privilege many members of that house still regret the change they say and not unreasonably that with time and the purifying effect of public opinion the objections to the old system would have died away a committee of the house of commons would have come to regard bribery as all honest and decent men must in time regard it they would acknowledge it a crime and brand it accordingly so too it is surely probable that members of the house of commons sitting to hear an election petition would have got over that low condition of political morals which allowed them to give or be suspected of giving their decision for partisan purposes without regard to facts and to justice on the other hand it seems a strange anomaly that a judge may not only declare the candidate of the majority disentitled to a seat but declare the candidate of the minority entitled to it in one celebrated case of an irish election the candidate elected by an overwhelming majority was unseated by the decision of the judge the candidate who had a very small minority of votes in his favour was installed in the seat it was obviously absurd to call such a man the representative of the constituency it is right to say that none of the effects anticipated by the chief justice were felt in england the impartiality of the judges was never called in question in ireland it was otherwise at least in some instances judges are rarely appointed in ireland who have not held law office and law office is usually obtained by parliamentary in other words by partisan service there is not therefore always the same confidence in the impartiality of the judges in ireland that prevails in england and it must be owned that in one or two instances at least the effect of referring an election petition to the decision of an irish judge was not by any means favourable to the public faith either in the dignity or the impartiality of the bench of late years some really stringent measures have been taken against bribery several boroughs have been disenfranchised altogether because of the gross and seemingly ineradicable corruption that prevailed there time education and public opinion will probably before long cleanse our political system of the stain of bribery before long surely it will be accounted as base to give as to take a bribe End of section twenty one